Hey everybody, Zach Pini with the vlog to watch. Today we are here with the Spending Time Podcast. I'm chatting with David Breeden. David, welcome. Hey, hey everyone, how's it going? Hey, so we are chatting about uh, some of the most key watchmaking innovations that have come along, really of the modern era. And these are the types of innovations and technologies that have been introduced to watchmaking, I would say probably what, in the last 20, 30, 40 years even? Yeah. Um, the types of technologies that we want to see brought into the mainstream or technologies that have worked their way uh, down the stream but we want to see more of. That's right. So I just searched for innovation and innovative on, on, on a block to watch to see, you know, what comes up. And I see this Dominic Renault one uh, with a 5 hertz blade <laughs> resonator in this super weird looking case. And so basically what I think we should do is we should start far away, you know, far detached from what's actually available and, 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 and bearable and uh, commercially <laughs> feasible and then work our way towards stuff that's uh, become more omnipresent in watches today and, and, and genuinely affordable. You know, like stuff available at under $1,000, but possibly even under $500. How does that sound? Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. And I mean, I mean, there have been technologies that have worked their way into, I mean, you, you and I were just chatting about this offline about uh, ceramic bezels, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was a, this was a big deal innovation, what, from the last 10 years, probably, I'm not sure who gets to lay claim to having the first ceramic bezel, but they were kind of a big deal. And now we're seeing them in, in Tissot dive watches. I mean, they've worked all the way down the price range. That's right. What I recall for Ro what was the first in a Rolex was the, uh, in 2005 on the GMT Master 2. I think that's that's where it made its debut on a, on a gold GMT Master 2. If if you guys know know better, then feel free to correct me, but that's <laughs> that's what I recall as as you know where where Seracrom made its debut. I I can totally imagine there had been uh, more obscure uses of that, but this is what I recall. And um, now that 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 sounds about right, and I don't think Omega put it into practice until as recently as what 2013 or 14 when they uh, skipped ceramic and went straight their liquid metal technology, which is essentially ceramic and uh, like an alloy that's that's filled into the laser engravings and the bezel itself. But again, yeah, I mean that was that was as as recently as five years ago, five six years ago. Yeah, and my my favorite example, if you, if we want to stick to ceramic here, is is the Tissot C Star One Thousand from twenty fourteen. Actually, that's all. That that feels like oh, it wow. happened yesterday, and it so didn't. And <laughs> it it had this weird colored ceramic and uh, uh, this red type of uh, of ceramic in the bezel and. Um, basically, the point I want to make here is that we, we can divide these pieces of innovation in, in many different ways. We are going to see watches themselves that are as concepts, totally outstanding from the ground up. And then we will see uh, different types of innovations that um, affect different elements of a watch. The, uh, it's, it's exterior features, uh, the, it, the way its movement functions, and so on and so forth. So I want to bring here um, my first and fa possibly my favorite concept watch from from recent years, and that's the Cartier ID one and ID two. And I'm not even sure if people remember these. These were uh, in 2012 and uh, 2009 actually, and this was Cartier really pushing it. This is this was when Cartier was uh, saying, "Okay, guys, we are an auto luxury brand now, and we are super innovative." and and we do this and that. And if you look at where they are these days, they still have a very strong and very established um, collection and, and sortiment of watches. But this is a totally different era. 
And of course it goes without saying that it's just super expensive to pull off, uh, to spend years and years and years developing watches that would ultimately never make into um, production and commercial uh, availability. So what I see here, I'm, I'm playing a video here of the Cartier ID1 and it shows a watch that had uh, a very interesting new type of escapement. It had um, an, a neobium a titanium a case. So that was a really cool concept. And then Cardi, uh, the Cartier ID2 came along three years later and it had everything, uh, that, oh, actually a lot of the things that we see today. So for example, the second generation of Rolex watches has extended power reserve, Panerai has extended power reserve, and we see uh, uh, even Bowman Mercier, five days of power reserve. But that only started happening in recent years, and there it was. There was Cartier seven or eight years before today, and I'm sure the development actually happened a decade before today. And what's what's really a shame about these is it was funny because when you mentioned these were high on your list, yeah. I hadn't I hadn't even heard of these. <laughs> this yeah. like, so I, I did a little bit of digging as well. Super obscure, and it's a shame because there's enough tech in here that like you don't see anything quite like this in the current. Cartier not at all offerings. and like there's a lot of really really interesting innovation in here that's just kind of left by the wayside yeah. essentially so what I'm seeing here is, is there's like I, I pause the video here. it's a twin dual level barrels which means four barrels in the same watch and today I know that the Chopar LUC Quattro has the exact same thing um, and and some other watches have um, two barrels you know sometimes a series coupled sometimes uh, they work in different ways like in the Chachère Duometro where they power two different uh, gear trains so there are many different ways how we have seen this uh, put into production actually the Duometro is over 10 years old now so that already was uh, you know like uh, in the late uh, as, as, they, as they like to say so there's a lot of innovation that was going on and it's the same in the cars and same in tech that we see these happen in, um, in, in concept products and then it trickles down into commercially available products and that's all good my question here is wh where's this happening wh where's this in today's watchmaking have we really arrived or are we just busy implementing the stuff that we invented 10 years ago and then there's going to be this next big push like a couple of years from now wh wh what do you think i think it's a great question i think i think some brands do it a little bit better than others and i think you know the to me the Cartier is a great example, like the whole idea behind a concept watch or a concept car. We see the same types of things in the automotive industry where, um, you know, a concept car is, 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 is something wildly impractical, but it's designed to hint at the future of whatever that brand is working on. And to design, to, it's the same thing, exactly what we're seeing with this, this Cartier. And um, what's a shame and what I'm saying is it, it seems like so much of this tech is being left by the wayside because we don't see any implementation of these types of of, uh, of features and technologies that you were kind of listing um, implemented in their current collection. Now on the other hand, a brand like Piaget, uh, 10 years ago in 2010, when they set the world record for the world's thinnest uh, automatic watch mm -hmm. with the Alta Plano Ultra Thin, um, and they've been doing this for the better part of the last 50 years. They've been they've been making thinner and thinner watches, first mechanical, then automatic. Um, and then you handled the Alta Plano Ultimate Concept uh, last year at SIHH. Yeah. And I genuinely think that Piaget is one of those brands where they take their record-breaking concepts and they do actually bring them into the collection. And so when I saw that Alta Plano, 
uh, last year, I was like, wow, this is the future of what Piaget is working on. I think that's legitimately exciting. But there are very few brands where you actually see that evolution from um, from the sort of pie-in-the-sky uh, innovation and concept production or concept pieces actually brought into proper production and i think you you know before we started recording you and i were struggling trying to think of any brands specifically that follow that exact pattern and they're very few and far between that's true and it's also one thing to be innovative once and then it's a completely different thing to be consistently innovative and and keep pushing that's a very good point that's a very good point i think you know the the most consistent of them all is, is is hublot uh, Richard Mill also, but when you when you when you know you can comfortably ask for um, two, three, five, eight hundred thousand dollars or more per watch, you can um, erode your R and D costs in no time at all. You know, so that's that's a different thing. It's I'm happy for Richard Mill, but it's it's slightly more diff- you know difficult to do it at, yeah, at a relatively more affordable price point. Yeah, that's an extremely good point. So what has been kind of your favorite innovation from Hublot in the last 15, 10 years? How long have they been a thing again? Um, 10 years? Well, <laughs> well not over 15 years. Yeah, 15 years now. Okay. Which is a long time, actually. And my favorite by far is, is, is Magic Gold. I'm, I'm watching here a video from the Watches TV, so kudos to them. It's from the launch event of Magic Gold in 2014. And uh, they filmed this inside this... Um, workshop that is uh, on the ground floor of uh, the Hublot HQ um, near um, Geneva and I've been here and I've seen you know where it is made and how it's done and I actually had a magic gold watch in for a review about a year ago and I watched this video because I was like how you know how do you take because we've grown to take whatever the brands say with a with a with a substantial pinch of salt you know like when they say oh it cannot be scratched mm-hmm. you you imagine there's <laughs> got to be some you know fine print or whatever um and i watched this video of jean claude beaver literally shouting at the audience saying it cannot be scratched and i'm like well it's <laughs> it's still 18 karat gold which means three quarters of it is, is gold and the only way you can make 18 karat gold is by changing that remaining quarter of the material. And so what they've done is they added boron carbide, which is, I think, the second hardest material um, in the world. Second or third, I'm not even sure. And basically they cook it and they treat it together with gold and they create this alloy um, of, of, material, of a material which can only be scratched by a diamond. It has the same, essentially the same properties as ceramic does. And so I went at this gold case with a key. I, I actually posted a video. We, we posted a video of it on our Instagram at a blog to watch. And uh, needless to say, people freaking, you know, loved it. And it was it was a pretty crazy video going at a full gold watch uh, with a gold pass, a gold case and stuff <laughs> with, a, with a key. And there was not a, not a damn scratch on it, which was, which was pretty damn impressive. So for me, I think that is a new way of looking at 18 karat gold and... Uh, they still got to work a little bit on the color. I'm sure they can make that happen. But overall, the intention is just is, is mind-blowing, and it really blew me away. Uh, and for you? No, I mean, these are the types of innovations that I, I genuinely love. I mean, I, I, I understand that precious metals, especially gold, um, are not for everybody. But at the same time, like, if you've seen if you've seen a relatively new or you've felt the pain of scratching, recently yeah. scratching, like a white gold or a yellow or a rose gold 
watch i mean it's it's a super soft metal mm-hmm. and it doesn't take it doesn't take a doorknob in your house to put a dent in it i mean like, yeah you know some some stainless steel watches you you've got to really smack them but like you really don't get that 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 same level quite so much with with gold and so to me there's a, a legitimately like an incredible practicality at play here and hublot managing this type of technology and pushing it into more watches if consumers respond, if the demand responds for an impervious precious metal, essentially, that pushes the envelope forward, and other brands try to innovate and create their own. And and what 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 ends up happening is you start seeing more and more brands embracing these types of technologies. And I think that to me is what creates the ultimate trickle down. We're not mm-hmm. looking for Hublot to make um, an affordable magic exactly. gold. We're looking to Hublot to push the envelope to a point where other brands start taking notice and start innovating on their own. I mean, that's what gives us uh, Tissot's ceramic bezels. And I mean, ultimately looking at where the demand is and what customers want yeah. and designing their own. It's going to trickle down. It will have to. If, if there's if there's one percent chance of, 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 of this being, you know, something that can be applied to um, more affordable watches, it's going to happen. And let's not forget that we're talking about this Swiss luxury watch industry. So uh, I personally don't mind that they innovate with gold. Even if, even if I cannot afford it, I feel like sure it's it's a it's a natural combination for for the swiss watch industry and we hear so much of this nonsense you know going on so many like uh eye roll eye rolling you know innovation <laughs> like, it's like who whoever asked for this stuff you know <laughs> and even then i feel like fine okay sure because just like i said i don't want to sound like a, a hypocrite here it's it's luxury watches so let's go balls out let's let's create crazy innovations but i do like stuff that has not been done before anywhere in any other industry. And um, I will stick with Ubel here just for a second because we could love it or hate it. Uh, they still were the first to create colored ceramic um, in, in bright mm-hmm. colors. Of course, colored ceramic mm-hmm. has existed before, but even if, if you recall the first ceramic watches that were really popular were the Chanel J12 and a few others, the mm-hmm. Rados, and they were all in this monochromatic colors, uh, black and white mainly. And then Rados started creating the hyperchrome, but that's always this mushy, muddy type of color, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes reminiscent of titanium and so on. And, um, and so uh, what Ublo has managed to do is create bright red ceramic. And the reason why other brands, including Rolex, actually struggled with creating bright colored ceramic is that the pigments that you use to color ceramic, uh, they deform and they create these uh, these nasty uh, flaws in the texture and in the surface of ceramic when you're cooking the ceramic. So when you put it into this uh, surface and you expose uh, it to hundreds and even thousands of, of degrees of Celsius, uh, the pigments themselves in, in the in the material cannot take it. So what Ublo has managed to do is create a furnace that heats the piece that they are working on extremely evenly. And when that happens, uh, the pigments react in a different way and the color remains uh, perfectly consistent throughout the piece. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. they can create any and color of ceramic they want. And that's the first. A word literally any color. Yeah. And- and and the thing that's the most incredible about this is like it it's re- it's really hard to fully appreciate uh, handling it's it's really hard to appreciate one of these looking at it online until you handle how red that Big Bang King or the Orlinsky is in person. I mean it's 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 you can't take your eyes off the color. I mean it's it you know it's it's interesting because when you look at a lot of the images online. Um, 
ceramic tends to either look glossy to the point where it looks kind of plasticky mm-hmm. and in person there's a i'm not sure how to describe it there's there's just a there's a there's a depth to the color that that plastic does not have yeah and it really to me it really comes through with the with the red is the easiest way to to tell us it's just it's such a deep like it's such a bright but deep red mm-hmm. it's it's amazing it's amazing it looks it really it's really amazing it it, yeah. it it looks of course from afar it looks one could argue kind of tacky but then again what do you want from a 45 millimeter bright colored watch <laughs> it's not gonna be it's not gonna be a 36 day date okay so <laughs> yeah but but it, that's right you weren't yeah. you weren't going for subtlety when you <laughs> when you chose your robot. yeah exactly exactly and in terms yeah. of subtlety um what I when we started working on this idea for this podcast, I, I wrote down Kurt Klaus uh, Perpetual Calendar, which is one of the most subtle innovations in a long, long time, which did away with all those nasty corrector pushers on the side of the case, and uh, you know for perpetuals because most perpetual watches, if you if you uh, take a closer look, you will see that they need them and they have these these tiny little corrector pushers on the side of the case, and you need a pen or you need some sort of a sharp object. And you need to fiddle with them, and they don't always work right. If you want to reset your, your some of the indications and displays on your perpetual calendar, and what Kurkwas has done is create uh, a full um, perpetual calendar module, um, whose every single display uh, can be modulated via the crown. And I think that's that, that's that's really cool. And it's extremely subtle. It's way it's it's the exact opposite of this red ceramic that I'm looking at here. But but I still <laughs> appreciate it greatly because it must have taken a, you know a genius of which he obviously is and a lot of work, a tireless work to develop it. And for that, I love it. Do you have something like that? Something that's that's very niche and, and very difficult to spot? No, absolutely. And I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, it's it's subtle, but it's extremely practical. And I think um, that to me is uh, these these types of practical applications are are ripe for working their way into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And um, they're a lot of fun. I mean, they're 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 fun for as watch collectors, as lovers, whatever whatever you may be in terms of your position in the hobby, like genuine practicality can't be beat for me like one of my favorite movement innovations while we're talking about movements has been um the uh the J- jlc's geophysic movement the caliber what eight eight zero i think um it's a deadbeat seconds movement and if you if you look into the deadbeat seconds movement it has a has an amazing history rolex has made them um jls this is jlc's most modern one I, I believe they've had them in the past mm-hmm. um there are a few other brands that have them generally pretty high end um right now the cheapest you can get uh, a deadbeat seconds movement is actually from um uh habring 2 mm-hmm. uh the austrian Probably. brand but what's interesting yeah what's interesting about their execution is that it's it's a, it's a value 7750 that's been modified wild wildly deconstructed um to essentially make the seconds hand tick mm-hmm. <laughs> so they, they went to great lengths to take a chronograph movement that's and funny. make a three hand watch that ticks out of it which i think is is amazing but at the same time it's it's hand wound it's a very very different beast than what jlc gave us back in 2015 i think 2014 2015 it's been a couple of years um, but I love this movement because um, 
one, it's 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 not about everybody else. It's it, it's one of those watches that's about the wearer. It's it's uh, there's 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 a lot to appreciate in in a movement that you essentially pay a lot of money for it for it to imitate what a what a quartz watch does. But what I love about quartz watches, uh, just in general, what I love about this watch is is the precision in the the ticking. And it, to me, and and for for anyone really, like time is something that's measured in sixty seconds. Time ticks. Like time does. There's this. There's this kind of like the, the the very definition of time is measured out in like excruciating exactness with a true second watch, and I love that mm-hmm. about it. Um, point. And JLC kind of took it to the you no, know, they took it one step further, and it, it doesn't just tick. I mean, they they um, they redesigned the balance wheel uh, to minimize what air friction, I guess, inside the case. Mm-hmm. So it's more efficient. Um, the movement cool. is, is pretty radical and it has a very cool kind of architectural look to it that you don't um, you don't see in any of these other movements. I mean, it, it comes in at under 10K and I think if it were not JLC, if it were anybody else and it were automatic, it would be it'd be 15 or 20. I think Gronfeld uh, has one and there's this 30K. <laughs> Maybe, I mean, we're talking, I mean, super high-end stuff. The punchline here that I'm trying to make is that this is one of my favorite complications in watchmaking. Um, there is a, a unique precision to quartz watches that enable you to synchronize them to the second. There's something super satisfying about that. There was, you know, a 30, 40 year ago, uh, a need for watches that could be synchronized amongst various team members and researchers um, to that exacting degree, um, which was unique in and of itself. Uh, not so much anymore, but again, like in terms of the romance of timekeeping. Um, there is sort of a vague end user practicality there. I would love to see more brands doing stuff like this. The, the downside to it, of course, is that unlike uh, Magic Gold, which has like a, a dramatic uh, visual understanding, mean, you can visually understand what it is. I mean, the visual understanding of a product like this is, is, is much harder to, to grasp. I think for the layperson, you're like, what? This is an $8,000 watch that ticks. I don't get it. Um, what we do. And the geophysic was unsurprisingly not commercially su- successful, and, and I've spoken to a few different people at uh, at the brand. It sounds like this this watch is not long for this world, um, mm. <laughs> which, think, is, think, which is a shame. I think that it's partial. Of, of course, design is always going to be uh, subjective, but it was kind of bland. You know, it was, it was like I looked at oh, it. Oh, very it, much it, so. It didn't, yeah. it didn't move me in any way. I'm looking at videos of it now, and I'm like, well, well at least it's legible, which is not true for every <laughs> every new watch these days. Right. So, right. so that's a good point, right there. But the but case I think it was interesting kind of because it, it's yeah, no, I mean it's very it's very Spartan. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is like you know I know you've you've been a huge fan of the Gyro Lab, yeah, uh, which is another radical innovation that JLC has done, and we also haven't seen much of since. I mean, what, 2016 or, or, or earlier? Um, but those watches looked like they had something really incredible inside them. You mean the Extreme Lab? Uh, excuse me, yeah, the Extreme Lab, sorry. Yeah, yeah the Gyro Lab is the, the escapement in the, okay, yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly, That those are amazing, those are freaking amazing. And and that was technically their version of the, of the, of the concept, the ID concept, but the difference being that you could actually go out and buy an Extreme Lab too, and, Speaking of which, the Extreme Lab Two is one of the most affordable, stupendously high and and complicated watches from a major brand these days. You can you can pick one up for about twenty five thousand sometimes, and it looks and feels and performs like a Richard Mille. It's it's ridiculously high end. It's it's insane, 
And the fact that you can pick one up for, you know, for the price of, you know, way less than a gold Daytona or whatever. I don't even know what, what example to bring here. Like, way less than a three-hand FB Jorn and or... And honestly, it's it, it genuinely is one of the one of the most glorious modern movements, uh, in my opinion, at least. Uh, yeah, and I, yeah, I would I would completely agree with that. I think I think that that watch, along with the uh, the duometry uh, yeah. that JLC does yes. as well, those are two of their most underrated, just gobsmackingly yes. complicated watches that are. I mean, I. I <laughs> I, I cringe at saying something like this is attainable, but like when you, when you you stack this next to something that's literally a hundred k, easy, um, it, 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 yeah, you know, it's it's half the cost. If you put it next to like an RM eleven, there's no shame in in, in putting yeah. any of these watches next to them, and um, so many bespoke elements to the movement, their architecture, the case is is incredibly uh, well made, and and has this quirky uh quick release and what i love about this is, is if you look at the case back on a, of an extreme left too it appears as though the movement was not able to fit in it which is hilarious because <laughs> it has this oval shaped rear crystal and of course the winding rotor needs to be round and it, it's just it doesn't fit and you know that that's such a weird and quirky cool way of, of just going about all these things and um anyway i've, I've gone on a, <laughs> long enough about the extreme yeah, left too but but I think that the Extreme Lab raises an interesting point in terms of innovation yeah. that's wild. I mean, it's super practical. I mean, this is a watch that requires, what, no lubrication? The, the, end, the end goal here was a movement that required zero lubrication, right, over its entire working life. I'm not even sure if, they, if that was the case. Was it? I, I honestly don't recall that. I'm not saying it wasn't. I'm just, I'm just not 100% sure. I cannot say yes, it was. It might have been. I, yeah, I, I seem to remember lubrication being a big part of it. But that still is today, uh, and, and, and that leads us to, yeah. to this other topic of, of silicon components, which I think is, right. is, a, great, is a great thing. I think, uh, but the, the, the thing is, what we, what we hear often is that, oh, it has a silicon hairspring, which is great. But I think the real innovation lies in silicon escapements. Uh, because what what you need in, in technically 99.999% of watches is you need to lubricate uh, the Swiss lever escapement. If you craft them from silicon, you need no lubrication in those parts. Right. You need it elsewhere, but but it is here where there's uh, this this very frantic action happening on on the on the on the uh, pallet jewels and 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 the fork and and the balance wheel and so on. And that's where you need servicing. That's where you need to uh, make sure that lubrication is just absolutely spot on. So if you do away with all of that, you you go a long way towards a watch that requires servicing not every three years, but every seven years or 10 years and so on. And, and that, that's a really yep. great thing. And you can mass produce it really easily. So that is something that is entirely um, feasible to produce for, uh, for relatively affordable watches. Yep. No, and I think I think that's a great point. I mean that 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 to me is at the core of of what we're trying to get at here in this conversation. That is, this is technology. I mean, who is who kind of pioneered this tech? I know Ulysses Nardin. Yes. Um, has been has been using they would, for I, I, a long time, and they they to me, I when I think of that material, I think of them as kind of the pioneers here. And again, the the end benefit for the customer is prolonged service life. I mean, it's to not have to send your watch in every three to five years. Like when you when you objectively double that service interval to uh, six to ten years or whatever that happens to be. I mean, that's a, that's a huge implication um, for the life of a watch. 
strangely Paddock. The last time we've seen Paddock's, well, the innovative side, uh, it's been, what, it was 2014, I think? Um, no, we, we, we've, we've seen uh, the word time with those weird character pushers and stuff, and, uh, and, yeah, and, and, and they, and they do true. like to innovate sometimes, but it's, of course, these are, these are strictly Halo pieces here, uh, <laughs> and, and that, that's all good, but, but you know, you're not going to get a tag for 25k or 50k even and say, oh, this is super innovative, uh, I think. Yeah. You know, very they, true, they do have true. some some quirky, cool uh, solutions in their uh, chronograph uh, um, movements, for example, where uh, they really fine tune them to to um, a shocking extent and and an impressive extent. Um, you did mention some time ago uh, the, the super quartz movements, which uh, I guess is another thing that is just for the dorkiest, nerdiest uh, watch lovers <laughs> out there who would say, yes, that's exactly what I want, the quartzest of quartz. <laughs> but, but I think they are, they are amazing. How about, how about you? Yeah, I, I think so too. And, and it's funny because I um, probably the last two years in a row, I mean, a quartz watch has probably been one of my most worn watches in rotation. And Which piece? it's one of those things where um, I've got like a, a Breitling Aerospace. Mm-hmm. So thermocompensated, super quartz, got a perpetual calendar, all kinds of cool, like it has a backlight. I mean, it has all this stuff that like you wouldn't get in a mechanical watch. And I understand that the romance is not there, but the practicality is unreal. And it's one of those watches that... Um, is always in my carry-on so I'm either wearing it on the plane or it's in my bag like it's it's like I always just have it with me um, yeah. even if it's not on my wrist I always have it with me the nice thing is that it it um, it it's sets well easily to it's well made it sets easily to new time zones and it's always running so if you don't wear it for three or four days at the end of your vacation when it comes time to get back home pull it out of the bag it's running anyway the the, the punchline here is that there is we don't all love to admit it because we love to love mechanical things. There mm-hmm. is, to me, a place for ultra-precise, extremely well-made quartz movements, and Grand Seiko still makes theirs and innovates on theirs. Um, I'm worried a little bit about where Breitling is because I feel like a huge, like a lot of Breitling owners have been part of the aerospace or like their super quartz movements, essentially, that they've been manufacturing. I know they're like Certina and um, like there are a number, I think Tussaud, Tussaud has a number of these as well. There, Every brand kind of has some cool, not every brand, but there are a number of, a small number of brands that have cool quartz innovations. Longines just debuted last uh, last summer, the the VHP, VHP. Flash, yeah. the flash setting, which you can set your GMT watch with so Morse code. Speaking of super weird innovation. It's the most bizarre thing I've ever seen, but yeah. I love it. I love it. It's so out of left field. Yes. It's so practical. And the best thing about it is that it's not reliant on... I mean, people are saying that atomic radio signals, like that for, for timekeeping, they're saying that's going to go away. And like you look at all of the Citizen and Seiko watches and Casio watches that are based on a technology that's essentially going to become obsolete. And I think the whole point of a lot of these types of technologies and a lot of why we love watches is that there's not this planned obsolescence baked in. And that's kind of what Quartz has gotten to at the point where it's so good and it's so embedded in our our day to day. I mean it doesn't it to me it, it doesn't run the risk of, of feeling obsolete at any point. So I don't have any any trouble supporting it as 
maybe I, I, I could have at some point. But anyway, the, the punchline is that there are brands that are innovating on this technology that makes it easier for us to have a super accurate watch in our pocket, on our wrist, in the, t- the carry-on bag. Um, and I think that's, that's a legitimate end use, a legitimate benefit for the end user, and I love that. And there are very few brands that are doing enough innovation in that space. I agree. I, th- I think Quartz has got to be the ultimate innovation in terms of you know, what the watch industry came up with and, uh, and, and how expensive it was at the time of its launch and how extraordinary it was. And it, it, it genuinely revolutionized the way we mm-hmm, keep it mm-hmm. our time. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and now you can, you can buy it in a, in a 99 cent watch. It's, it's everywhere. <laughs> it's literally mm-hmm. everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and that is just the ultimate in, in my mind. And of course we have gone full circle here from, from crazy Cartier ID twos and, and, and whatnot all the way to, um, to, to quartz. And, yeah, there are many of us watch travelers who will never ever wear a watch or or, or see see the appeal. Uh, I personally like it, but it, in in very specific use scenarios. Like for example, Ariel had a Grand Seiko um, quartz diver, and it had mm-hmm. this step stepping motor that would move the seconds and so extremely accurately. There was no slap, nothing. It would just literally just almost like draw the, the second hand to where it was supposed to be. It was an extremely mm-hmm. accurate movement. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it and I thought to myself, wow, that's, that is some <laughs> real engineering right there. And when I look at it, the sweeping seconds on a mechanical watch, I'm reminded of the engineering that goes on and, and, and the amazing uh, mechanics that goes on behind the dial. And when I saw this movement on this Grand Seiko, I, I, I felt the same way. I felt the same awe. And, mm-hmm. and when that happens, I'm not going to say no to it just out of this or just out of, <laughs> you know, like, oh, it's a, squar- it's a quartz. I don't, I don't care. I do care. And I did find it uh, super impressive. Um, yeah, and I think you've, yeah. you've done enough writing on Grand Seiko, especially even like the, uh, the spring drive movements, which yes. actually use a, a quartz oscillator to... Mm-hmm. To I mean, there's an immense amount of tech buried in there that um, that's also worth. I mean, that's probably a conversation in and of itself. But I think I agree with that being sort of the the, the biggest innovation in the last forty to fifty years. And at the point where we've we've gotten to a point where there are no major innovations left in courts by all appearances, but people are brands like Grand Seiko and and Breitling and and uh, Longines are innovating within the innovation they're adapting making tiny tiny tweaks like the stepper motor for example i mean it's yes. a, it, that's a that's a feature that not even an untrained eye might pick up on initially but once i mean it really is mesmerizing the way one of their courts one of those 9f movements the way those take it's incredible i'm looking at Ariel's video uh, video review of these watches from three years ago these are the grand psycho quartz diver sbgx uh, 11.5 and sbgx 11.7 depending on the dial color variant. But you are absolutely correct that the spring drive is the ultimate coming together of, uh, mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. quartz and mechanical watchmaking. It, it, if the Swiss had done it, if, if Omega had done it, they would have carved into the surface of the moon that they did it. <laughs> Honestly. That's exactly it, true. Right? And they didn't. And, and they didn't because it's freaking hard. It's, it was incredibly difficult for, for Grand Seiko to do it. They worked... Overall, I think over 20 years or close to 20 years on it from concept to realization because the guy who had this brainwave to, uh, for how it would function um, 
they started working on it. I don't want to. I don't want to say something stupid. Probably in the seventies or early eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say late seventies, and they realized that they simply cannot power. They didn't have an integrated circuit and whatever that was required for the quartz to function that would consume so little energy that could be provided from the, from a spring. So it yeah. has taken technology decades to catch up with the idea, but the idea was there. And when, when it was possible, they created this integrated circuit that would, um, that would consume a tiny, tiny, tiny little <laughs> bit of energy that comes from a main spring, because that's what spring drive is. You have a spring that's wound by an automatic rotor and you have a three-day power reserve and you have not a balance wheel, but you have what they call a rotor, which is kind of confusing, but it's called a rotor because the balance wheel in a spring drive is not oscillating. It just turns continuously in one direction and it has a magnetic brake that's connected to a quartz regulator. So the quartz regulator is constantly checking whether or not this rotor is turning at the correct speed and it applies a brake to maintain perfect timekeeping. But the whole thing is driven with a going train uh, like in a mechanical watch and a spring and you have a vertical clutch, a column wheel, a chronograph and whatever you want and the power reserve indicator. So it's everything you want in a mechanical watch uh, and it's hand wound, you can hand wind it through by the crown and all that. So it, it's, it's everything in my mind. Uh, yeah, coming truly, together in truly the best of both worlds and i think to to kind of to kind of put a bow on this you know as we as we look to the future in terms of who's who's still innovating who's going to bring us the next tech that that makes this easier makes our lives better you know wh- whatever it is in terms of in terms of technology and practicality and trickle down um, some of the things that we've been talking about to me you know seeing brands like omega who once innovated but now like i mean they're literally remaking a movement they're remaking the 321 like that's their big news this year and like that to me doesn't bode super well for mm. an interesting future um <laughs> at least at least for you know I, I i love omega as a brand but like that to me is not super exciting because um you know we're not just repeating watch designs from 40 or 50 years ago now we're we're doing movements and like you look at brightling and we're seeing a lot of the oh. Um, you know, like, don't get me wrong. I love what they're doing right now. I mean, it's a lot of really interesting design and stuff, but none of it feels particularly new to me. And that that was one thing I always really liked about Breitling from the past, like five or 10 years was just that you never really knew what you were going to get from those guys. And it was always like, some of the stuff was really wild and like really out there, but some of it was really, really great. And it was like when a brand is messing around with design and innovating on on features and trying to to benefit the end user they're throwing stuff at a wall to see what sticks and something will always stick yeah that's right the three two one for me i you know i'm sure it will make uh many collectors and omega fans of omega super excited and super happy for me it's uh I, I don't I, I don't care and, and they, they were super obscure about how these are going to be assembled in a, in a different room and, da, da, da. and I'm like you know this really is like a cool idea in some way shape or form but to not add any uh, innovation whatsoever it's not that important in my mind in my mind and I'm you know I'm sure there's a riot starting somewhere now that I said this but, <laughs> but uh, of course he went to the moon and it's, it's, it's super impressive but to reverse in watchmaking I think that's that's just uh, that's just um, 
a no-no in my mind. If if they added, um, you know, the, the silicon escapement or or a hairspring or or, or mm-hmm, something like that, mm-hmm. I'm not saying you can you can modify that into a co- coaxial because that's gonna be impossible. But just something for that to happen as opposed mm-hmm. to saying, hey, you're doing essentially the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the the one thing I don't and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think we've seen whether or not this movement is gonna be meta certified. I'm not sure if you remember. It's not gonna be. Uh, I'm, so it's I'm not meta certified. So. I, I, I doubt. Mean, that, I doubt. That it, to uh, me, getting that certification and, and Omega's movements, like the the the, the eighty nine hundred series coax movements, getting to that level of um, accuracy and consistency. Um, I mean, Omega was delivering legitimate features and benefits in the form of movement innovation, like industrialized movement innovation with the the eight thousand series movements. Um, and to me, the three two one, yeah, it's like it it feels like it it feels like. It feels off-brand <laughs> in a sense. Yeah, I, 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 yeah we're, neither of us are making ourselves any, any fans over at the Omega Forum right now. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, making that a meta-certified or bringing it into, you know, the this this era of innovation and movement-making, to me, felt like, the, would have felt like the right thing to do. But anyway. if, if it makes people happy, <laughs> I'm happy for it. It, it, right. it just doesn't, you know, make me that excited. That, that, that's all. So, no, yeah, we have, have some fans. Now we do have come full, full circle. Some brands innovating, some brands creating the craziest stuff and Omega launching a movement from <laughs> half a century ago. That's that's actually pretty <laughs> hilarious. Uh, that's okay that's funny uh, i think we can wrap it up there because it's getting along here uh you, you guys if you have uh, some pieces of innovation in watchmaking in modern watchmaking that you know we have missed and you wanted to uh you you were expecting us to address it please let us know in the comments we would be excited to hear uh what is your favorite piece of innovation in watchmaking and um thank you guys for listening and talk to you in the next one thanks Zach. absolutely thanks everybody thanks david <laughs>